everybody. Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, this is Zach, as always, and with me is Clint. How are you, man? Tired. Zach, tired. <laughs> <laughs> Need a nap, man, but uh, still in a uh, good mood and excited to be here, buddy. How you doing? Yeah, I, I am tired as well. Um, <laughs> and we are tired uh, because we attended Tinley this past weekend. Uh, so we'll be talking about that here shortly. Uh, our guest tonight, uh, this is going to be a fun one, is Terry Burwell of TB Snakes. Uh, Terry works with a lot of different snakes. Uh, he's definitely known for his pythons um, work. Uh, but tonight, obviously, we're on the Colubrid and Colubroid radio show. So we're going to be talking about his work with arboreal rear fang snakes. So we're going to be doing uh, Boiga and... Um, Filo Drives, Bear and I, uh, we, uh, we had a listener ask for a Bear and I episode, and um, at least a portion of this one is going to focus on that because Terry has excellent taste in snakes and has those in his collection. So um, we'll be getting to Terry here shortly, but before that, we need to do a Tinley recap. So Clint and I got to be together again. <laughs> it was beautiful. Absolutely Wasn't it beautiful. beautiful? <laughs> um, so... Um, I was at Tinley plugging the book uh, and signing the book, and uh, Clint was obviously re- representing Metazotics, uh, and I, I think we both had a pretty good show. Would you agree? Oh, 100% I would agree. I, I know. I mean, obviously, Metazotics as a company did fantastic while we were out there, and that really, uh, really made me happy because um, when it comes to vending, I mean, let's face it, Tinley's not cheap. You know, mm-hmm. just just to be there to spend a whole weekend. It's you know, there's there's some expense, um, um, but I was very very pleased with the turnout and very very pleased from a business standpoint. But even more so, and I think we both experienced this. I mean, one, I can't tell you how many people I saw walking around carrying the book. Yeah, and, that was pretty I, awesome. And I was like, that that's cool. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, I talked to every one of them too, um, and uh, obviously, how many people talk to us about the podcast? And yes. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But uh, yeah, man, it was an absolute blast for me. Uh, mm-hmm. How about you? Now, I know at one point, and for those of you that don't know Zach, you know, on here we're both very, you know, big personalities, and we have no problem with with talking. But at one point, I walked over <laughs> to where Zach was signing these books. And I looked at him, and he, he finally looks my direction. I said, you look like a gorilla at the zoo where he's yep. just tired. He's not in his, in where he wants to be. He just not his elements. And it, yeah. it was, I couldn't help but laugh. Yeah. I, I don't want anybody to think I didn't have a good time at Tinley, but um, we, we've talked about it here. And if you've listened to me on other podcasts, I am a – I am naturally introverted – and my social circle here in northern West Virginia is about six people. And when <laughs> I have to go to a reptile show that has 10, 20,000 people, I don't even know how many people there were. I mean, on Saturday after, from 10 to 3, that place is a total madhouse. If, if you looked at me and you're like, huh, what's up with him? Um, I was just, uh, I believe psychologists call it flooding. <laughs> I was like com- completely overwhelmed with humanity and what it did that was the first time i've been behind a table in my life every other show i've ever been to i was the customer so i was walking around looking and i have a brand new respect for people uh who are on the other side of the table because it was it was 
It was great. It was very overwhelming. And what was also incredibly overwhelming was the response to the book in person. Uh, up until now, all the book sales have been through Instagram and Facebook. And, and we all know what that whole digital interface with humanity is like. Uh, and, and this was very different. It was, it was crazy because Russ's booth was the very first booth when you walked through the door. And I don't want to give the impression like everybody was buying the book. Uh, but there were a fair number of people buying the book. And, and, and if you were one of the people that ran through the door, there were about half a dozen, straight to the table and said, this is why I came. I, I just want you to know how special that is to me uh, because putting in the two years to write the, the book and hunt down all the photographs and make sure everything was right and dealing with the final process, it was for those moments. Like that, that, made, that vindicated the effort and made me want to do it again because I realized that this really is a, a enterprise worth doing. And the whole mission was to celebrate these snakes that they definitely have a following but they're not like corns and milks and, and kings. Uh, and, and it was just very humbling to talk to everybody. And what was also really weird for me uh, and my students, I had six students at the show and they were, they're, they're, they were jabbing at me. One of them was today is like the fact that people wanted to get a picture of me with them holding yes. the books. I was kind of like, what, what is this? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And some of those photographs are probably pretty damn funny because I I was like, wow, I, this is a thing. Cool. Um, mm -hmm. But I was a little bit like <clears throat> taken aback that that was something because I'm just, a, you know, in Wheeling, I'm a snake nerd that write that, that wrote a book on snakes and takes care of snakes. And people kind of look at me like, what the hell is, is, is this? He's got 100 snakes in his house. What? Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're with your people, it was just very, very different. So um, if you were one of those people, uh, thank you so much for all the 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 the, the praise. And and, and um, it really meant a lot to me. So thanks. And you uh, and then on the podcast front. Holy yes. hell. <laughs> holy hell. Uh, we we look at numbers and we look at graphs and we try to make sure we, we we're data freaks. Um, for different reasons, which I think makes us pretty – it's fun that Clint does the business side and I do the, like, analytics, mm -hmm. sociology. I don't know what the hell it is. I just like to look at grass because I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we can see that uptick when we do a, a topic people like or, or, or things in our graphs. But it's another thing to be at a show and about every 10 minutes for two days, somebody walks up to you and says, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Yes. You know, could you do a show on this? Could you do a show on that? Uh, and at one point I sat down and, and just got my notebook out and wrote all the topics people asked for. So mm -hmm. um, we may be doing more of these uh, meet and greet events um, in the future because this was pretty badass. Uh, oh, it was incredible. I, I mean, it was, you know, a few things about the podcast over the weekend that, I mean, it, it was a very humbling experience. You know, yes. it made it, it showed us. It, it was it wasn't an ego boost in any way. Instead, <clears throat> it was a what we are attempting to achieve is happening. You yep. know, and That's and it was just so exciting. Um, I went several times throughout the week. I talked to a friend of the show, Jason Hood, uh, mm -hmm. one of our former guests, and his booth is right by the doors by the bathroom. So I'd seen a lot, and I. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
but we would chat and, and he mentioned, he goes, I have no doubt that you guys are getting a lot of attention over there because I know how much, how many people are coming over and bringing up the episode he was on to him, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it was so true because like you said, it's every few minutes. I mean, someone would come up and, and bring it up and talk about the podcast and talk about an episode they liked or um, you know, something they'd like to hear. And it was, it was just so cool. It got to the point that the guy who was helping me at my booth, a friend of mine was teasing me yes. all weekend about he it. He teases both actually. Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was just such a cool experience. And, and I want to say, I mean, I think Zach and I both thank you all so much, you know, for that. Mm-hmm. It, it, everyone who came up and introduced yourselves to us while we were out there, um, it really did mean a lot. I, I was thrilled to have those conversations. Um, and what it really did for, for me and I think for Zach as well is just energize us even more to want to come yeah. back and, okay, wh- what else are we going to talk about? What are we going to do? What can we put out there that are going to help people? You know, exactly. that, that it's going to, uh, you know, really make it palatable and digestible for everyone. So, um, Thanks. Thank you all. I mean, it really was the highlight of the weekend. And I mean, and I love Tinley every year anyway. It To me, it's mm-hmm. such a, a cool thing. I loved getting to meet all your students that came out yeah. there, Zach. Um, you know, you could tell that they were having a blast. And so that's just, you know, so fun to watch. And uh, so that was really neat. Getting to uh, Russ, I met him for the first yep. time, you know, uh, out there. Billy Hunt, if you're listening, buddy, I got to meet him for the first time in person. Uh, and, and so many friends that, you know, I've had for years. So it was definitely an interesting Tindley. It was a, it was a good show. And um, I mean, it was, I came back just tired. I came back <laughs> tired, but I came back and, and just floating on cloud nine. I, I tell yep. you. Yeah. I, I flew out there and I flew home and my, cause plane, he's a diva. Yes. Cause, cause I'm a diva. diva. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's right. Diva me. Uh, but the joke was on me because I got delayed on the runway, and I'm cheap, so I got the cheapest ticket I could get. So all six foot two, 250 pounds of me was crammed in the last seat by the window. Mm. And every freaking time I fly, I end up with two other Zacks in my row. It's never <laughs> yeah. small people. It's always six plus, you know, six foot plus guys. And we were like, they taxi out there and they're like, well, there's a problem. We're going to sit here. So I got back home at one in the morning and then got up, came to school. But I was same, same deal. I was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, And uh, I'm just happy I went. Uh, And I also have, I went last year and I went this year and I feel like I may not have looked as much the first year, but I also felt like colubrids were more present this year, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and there was, there were usually there's one or two tables that have the oddballs that I like, and it was kind of nice to see multiple tables that had oddballs. I don't want to give the impression mm-hmm. there were, there was tons of diversity, but there was way more diversity than there was last year, and that gave me a little bit of hope. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of had this intention of like I'm going to go there and I'm not going to get anything. And I ended up having more pickups than I probably should have because a lot of the animals that I needed to to kind of finish out some of my pairs and things, which are not obscure, but not overly common, were there. Like um, uh, Ashley Denison had a uh, 
Japanese male Japanese rat snake and it was a European bloodline. I needed a male so I could get to 2.2 and the Zirkles had the black milk snake males that were adults. And I was like, well, crap, I need those too. <laughs> so, and I distinctly remember when I went in 2022, um, I walked the whole show like multiple times and I wasn't behind a table then. And I, I just, I got some locality Cali Kings and that was it. So mm-hmm. hopefully I've heard that Daytona is the Colubrid show. And I, I would like to see Tinley kind of head in the, direction of daytona i can never get to daytona there is one weekend a year one weekend a year that i have to be at west liberty it's the weekend before school starts and that is always the weekend of uh, daytona so see, um, i was just about to say we need to do mm-hmm. a ccr episode you know like from daytona but yeah i guess mm-hmm. uh, i guess i'll well, tell you about it <laughs> I, I have i have plans we have a new president right. at the university who's much more flexible than previous presidents so maybe uh, i can I, pull this off i, I don't right, know i like the sound of it well i didn't yeah. know that you had had pickups zach i didn't know that you uh were taking oh, yeah. anything home well, so that's the worst thing was russ because russ and i are the same person when it comes to taste and i i looked though he's got his animals started putting them out on the table and everybody knows me as the king snake guy and the locality king snake guy mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm looking as he's pulling these and i didn't even know he had animals and i was like oh crap those are those airport kings from Southern California where the airport's gone and it's a golf course. Like I did the whole thing and I love that. I love when herpetoculture keeps a line of animals alive that's been extirpated in the wild. Like that story mm-hmm. to me is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, Russ is all about that story too. So, you know, I asked him, are those those? And he was like, yes, that's those. And it was an adult pair and he had raised them and they came home. <laughs> so you know um so anyway but no it, it was it was good I'm, I'm 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 happy i went i loved meeting all of you and all the people and uh yeah that's pretty much all we have to say and thank you if you came up and talked to us well i'll say the the pickups before i move past it the pickups that i had um oh. mainly it was i got some things for the shop some things that i would you know had run out of that kind of thing i did pick up another adult um black milk that well, you know that because yep. that was fun, right? <laughs> yes, it was. Um, in short, uh, we picked that up from a friend, and uh, Zach was over there getting one as well. And yes, ends up uh, somebody was cash in hand about to buy it, and so <laughs> Zach kind of has to walk right in front of him carrying these snakes away. Um, mm-hmm. But there was another thing that's it's interesting. It's not necessarily colubrid, but it was the way it kind of fell in my lap while out there. Uh, so Bailey, the gentleman who was at the table with me, he uh, he's working out a deal with a, another mutual friend uh, for some some geckos of some sort, and she says that she you know would be happy to get some uh, Dominican mountain boas, you know, mm-hmm. a pair of those. And she saw somebody who had some, so he goes over and works out a deal with these to get these Dominican boas. Goes over to her, uh, or brings her over to the table, and she's looking at them where they're both male, and uh. she was wanting to pair. And so he's now got these two males. So he figures out, okay, how much cash with one male, this or that, uh, with her, locks it down. But he doesn't need this other Dominican mountain boa. So I now have a Dominican mountain boa, <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's one where I didn't need it, but I have <laughs> always kind of wanted to check them out, you yeah. know. 
uh, when they fire up, they really look yeah. good. So, uh, so that would be the the most unusual thing, I guess, that I'm coming back with. But did bring back some neat frogs. And I, I, how do I not come back with some cool frogs? And I'm literally set up behind Josh's frogs, and oh, Josh God, is yeah. standing right there next to me <laughs> for two days. So, brought some other cool stuff back for the shop. So that was fun. Fantastic. Fun. Yeah, it's funny you you got a Dominican mountain boa because right before Tinley happened. Uh, I've been trying to move all the Boyds out of my collection, mm-hmm. uh, but I have a soft spot for weird boas. And I saw a pair of Haitian boas, which are basically Dominican yeah, red mountain yeah. boas, only they're the like brown version. Yep. And uh, I messaged the guy, and I'm now using false water cobras as currency. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, the. Would you by chance be interested in X number of false water cobras for those boas? And I didn't think he was going to bite. And he was like, yeah, I would be. So I now have a pair of Haitian uh, boas. I think Kilobothrys, or I can't say that genus name to save my life. But anywho, yeah. But they're really cool. They're they're in an XO in quarantine right now in my house. And they're very nocturnal. So, uh like not just nocturnal, like the lights go out within 10 minutes. They're doing zooms around the enclosure. Wow. So um, they've been, a, they were fun. They, they started my, I put my kid in charge of those, just making sure everything was okay while I was at Tinley and he was sending me videos of them moving around and everything. So. So yeah, here's and, the bad part is, is how busy I am with, since I walked in to the shop with that boa, I haven't seen it since <laughs> it's yeah. Steve took it, set it up, you know, in quarantine, put it away. I've not even got to look at it again. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's been, it's been a hectic time it, after a show is always busy after a two and a half, three day show, uh, you cool. know, putting all that up. But uh, yeah, that, that's funny. I've not got to notice their behavior at all yet. There you go. Well, I just told you about it. So now you can go see that's it. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I think we're ready to jump into this. Uh, so our guest tonight, as mentioned before, uh, he's no, he's been on several podcasts, and we're happy to have him on ours, um, is Terry Burwell, TB Snakes. Um, Terry, how you doing tonight? Doing great, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, so... With with all this, I know that you you keep quite a few pythons. So just for the hell of it, even though we're not the Python show, but we're on the Python network. So mm-hmm. um, if you don't mind, just kind of giving a rundown of those, and, and then you know we'll we'll go from from there. Yeah, sure. So if I mentally walk through my my rooms, <laughs> uh, there's diamond pythons. Let me do the whole room. Colubrid Dan. Like, that Terry. right there is all, already cool, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> Diamond pythons are just awesome, man. Yeah. So um, so I say that because I have a cool room and a warm room. And so my diamond pythons and rhino rat snakes are in one room by themselves. And then um, so diamond pythons, rhino rat snakes, and then uh, rough scale pythons, Savu pythons, Sumatran short tail pythons. Um, I do the, the caramels and the het caramels. So my breeder pair is a, a VPI caramel with, and then a het. So, uh, I've got, I produce both caramels and hets. Uh, those are the pumpkin head ones. I really, really like those. Um, let's see, cool. uh, I have a Madagascar tree boa, annulated boas. I say Angolan pythons. And then for, for the boiga, the, uh, 
Buiga melanata, Buiga latifasciata, Buiga cyanea, and Buiga cynodon, as well as the Barrens racers and ball pythons have a, a small collection. Uh, de- I'm dedicated to the Sumapide project, so I, I, oh, cool. if it's not have anything to do with the Sumapide project, I don't I don't keep it. Um, uh, this year was my last year breeding lavenders, so I'm getting rid of those, and then uh, it's all just going to be focused on that one little project. Um, and I think that is it. Yeah. Cool. So obviously lots of boids, but there seems to be a theme with your colubrids. Yeah. So, is- <laughs> so rhino rat snakes and black milk snakes built my entire collection. So oh, cool. I, I got, I got some black milk snakes from uh, Don Shores and I got some rhino rat snakes and I was, I was fortunate to, I had success with those very early on. And then, as as those bred and I sold those offspring, then I got into rough scale pythons, and then I got into annulated boas, and then I sold those offspring, and then I got into more and more and more, and uh, to what it is now. Very cool. But I, I tell you, before we go too far into you know what you got here, I, I'm kind of a a background guy. You know, I, I love to know how you came about. You know, so it's mm-hmm. I kind of ask this of all of our guests. You know, were you always into reptiles as a kid? Was your family? You know, take us from the beginning on kind of how you got involved and how it, the evolution of it, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was ever since the beginning. So grew up on the banks of the Missouri River in Fort Benton, Montana. Um, my dad uh, was not afraid of snakes. It was one of those things I rode around with him all the time. And if there was a bull snake crossing the road, we'd stop and he'd help get it on the other side of the road. And if it was a rattlesnake, you know, he'd he'd kill it and cut off the, the rattle and give it to me, you know. Um, then there was a lot of garter snakes in that area as well. So I had positive experiences with snakes from a very, very early age. And I was fascinated with them from a very, very early age. I can remember going to reptile gardens back when you could ride the, the tortoises. Um, and, uh, before that was frowned upon. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, so our family was in, my grandma was in Nebraska. And so whenever we drive through, you know, we'd stop it at uh, reptile gardens and that was a very uh memory forming and uh i think interest shaping time in my life and then uh from montana we moved to kansas when i was in second grade so like the perfect time in my childhood to move to a small town where you have a bicycle which just equals total freedom (laughs) and uh, i mean the town was 100 people in uh in southeast kansas and so you know ringneck snakes and black snakes it was it was really really good so i didn't realize how great kansas was for for that sort of thing and mm-hmm. i was in 4-h i did the reptiles and amphibians uh module in 4-h and got to go to the university of kansas that's when i can still remember the they had a captive alligator and we got to hold a ball python. Like it was the first, you know, Python I hold, held in my life. I still remember that. Um, I remember seeing the specimens going into the rooms yeah. and seeing all the specimens and yeah. just geeking out over that and thinking that was so cool. And, um, and then we moved from Kansas to Wyoming, which is the maybe <laughs> worst place for, uh, for yeah. aspiring, aspiring herper. And um, so, and in that, I think my parents placated me with a Noah's Ark of species in my room. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it was, um, so, and it just kind of, kind of went from there, you know, uh, I was homeschooled in eighth grade and my dad and I, we built a shed 
the whole plan was to raise bearded dragons. Bearded dragons was kind of mm-hmm. coming up. I was a reptiles magazine subscriber. I was a Vivarium magazine subscriber. The, mm-hmm. the educational coordinator for the Vivarium magazine, Dan McCarran was the biology teacher in my town. He, my sister, oh. it was my sister's biology teacher. That's crazy. That's neat. And yeah. so, and so I went to my sister's parent teacher conference <laughs> so that I could see his collection, you know, and, and that was, that was really cool. And he introduced me to the Vivarium magazine and advanced, uh, herpeticulture, you know, all that systems and Philippe de Vosgely and all that. And so I was reading those documents from a very young age. Anyway, wanted to, wanted to breed bearded dragons at a, at a large scale. And so we built this shed, moved all of my animals from my bedroom into the shed. And I'd say most of them died within like a six period, six month period or a six week period. Sorry. Oh. Um, baseboard heaters in Wyoming are not a great heating source for a, a reptile room. And uh, so mm. I think that that was kind of a big part of it. Mm. And so, so after that, I was like, that's it. Didn't have any, any reptiles. And um, for a while, and that was a, a and I got, into uh burmese pythons and i took burmese pythons from college into uh, from high school all the way into college and and uh, so bearded and then, dragon to burmese python sorry, that, so, you know what's funny i just just make sure day. i'm understanding just seeing the i see the gateway i yeah, see yeah, to you know. this to this day i've never owned a bearded dragon like we built the shed for that and i've, I've never owned one yet <laughs> and, oh, really and, uh, yeah uh-uh. And, well, uh, you know what? First up, before you move past it, kudos to your dad because it sounds like he really mm-hmm. supported the hell out of you getting into this. So yeah. that's awesome on his part. Yeah, he really was. And it's kind of funny. There was a portion of there, you know, post-college. Um, I was kind of – I did a lot of things, right? I was a ski bum for a while. I, tra- I traveled around the world for a couple of years. And then I came back and just didn't, didn't really have like a career career, right? Mm-hmm. There was a time when he said, hey, man uh, maybe you shouldn't have any snakes, you know, like I was living in Charleston and I had, uh, you know, part-time jobs and, you know, wasn't making ends meet, but I bought a, uh, I bought a Colombian rainbow boa and, and then I bought a scrub Python and my parents <laughs> called me. They called me as I was coming back from buying the scrub Python. They said, what, you know, what are you doing? And I said, hey, I'm not gonna lie to my parents, you know? And I said, well, Actually, I just I just went up to uh, south of the border. It's a little town on the Carolina border. I said I just came up here and met this guy. I bought a, a scrub python. <laughs> there was just silence on the end of the line. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I'd, I'd ask my mom for you know rent money. You know those before you know, seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she said, "Do you think that was a smart idea?" And I said, "Well, it's cheaper than antidepressants," is what I said. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, she couldn't argue with that. And so, uh, but. Uh, but after that, I, um, you know, I did get an adult job and, and I, I have found myself in my life where I had time or I had money, but I very rarely had both. Time, and then, yeah. you know, and then after, uh, after I met my wife in 2013, um, I got an apartment in 2014 in, in Austin, the same day of Arlington. And so I went to, so we drove to Arlington and that's when I got, um, I got my black milk snakes and then I drove home, got the keys to my apartment and, uh, and started the, started the collection. So crazy. Very cool. So even though pythons are the bulk of it today, colubrids have the honor of starting it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, if you want to go all the The, way back, the formal adult collection. (laughs) <laughs> yes, the formal collection today rides mm-hmm. on the shoulders of black milk snakes and 
probably more so rhino rat snakes. Yeah, nice. absolutely. Absolutely. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. We'll and, take uh, it. We'll take it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Put that win for the Kluberts. <laughs> so yeah. y- you've, you've kept this diversity of, of snakes and, and I, I, I have great respect for that because that's, kind of the model that I've done over the, the years. And, and I, I, I just like the whole, um, and Rob Stone, I think talks about this, the whole, we're going to give something a try. And then if we like it, we keep it. And if we don't, it's okay to say, this isn't for me and to move on. But then you learn something from each taxa as you grow. Um, so we kind of, if you look at what you have currently, uh, basically 10 years later from 2013, uh, on mm-hmm. the colubrid side, anyway, there is this kind of theme with the exception of the, the rhino rats of arboreal, rear-fanged, colubrid, colubroid. Is there something mm-hmm. specific about that kind of ecology of this group that you, you, you're kind of drawn to? Or is it like as simple as they look cool? Or, or, or what is it about that kind of mix of characters that makes it so... That's what the bulk of it, and, and even with the rhino rats, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but they produce peptides, um, and, and and there is some evidence that they may actually have Duvernoy secretions, which is unlike any other rat snake uh, in, in that group. So, what is it just about this kind of arboreal aspect and and, and all that 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 does it for you? It's a, it's a very good question because, really, my my snake keeping up until that point. You know, when I think of keeping snakes, I think uh, early on it was limited to the Burmese pythons, right? And mm-hmm. so I was thinking, hey, I'm an experienced keeper because I keep these large, potentially dangerous animals. I keep them in a responsible manner and all that stuff. And so I said, hey, look at me. You know, I do this. But then um, early in my travels, I, I volunteered at a crocodile farm in Queensland, and uh, we had found a, a, a brown tree snake, right? Boiga regularis. Mm-hmm. And uh, took it to the manager of the farm. It was in a cardboard box. And I was like, hey, there's a brown tree snake in here. And he just rips it open, you know, and, <laughs> and, and dumps it into his hand. And I'm like, no, it's a brown tree snake. You know, it's, it's rear fanged. It's venomous. And he says, yeah, that's fine. And, and he just kind of <laughs> forces it into his hand. And I had, you know, I had no, I had no concept of, of what, of, of the, the dangers or the lack of dangers or the, I, I just didn't know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to do. I didn't, I didn't know how it was going to act. And so, you know, looking at it from the perspective of a Burmese Python, right. When a Burmese Python gets in that S shape, right. That's a, you better look out, you know, like it's <laughs> about to strike, but that's just a resting. That's the natural shape of, or resting position or, uh, of an arboreal snake, right. Is mm-hmm. that, is that mm-hmm. S shape. So I felt like I, I was really, really attracted to that snake and i thought i want to lo- i want to know more about that i really want to know more about that i thought it was so cool and then i can i can remember uh cruising the king snake forums and yeah. it was it was oh. bill hughes vegas billy right mm-hmm. and he he had he had a post on there talking about dog tooth cat snakes and it was very rare to see them i feel like you saw um you saw the the indonesian mangroves the dendrodendro and the dendromelanata cyanea of course uh to a lesser extent some gymnosincta but uh very rarely did you ever see pictures or any keepers that kept cynodon especially in north america in europe maybe you could get you know you could get something but uh, he put a post up about boiga cynodon and he said they're essentially an eight foot long amazon tree boa that's tame 
And that was just like, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I want. And from there, I never forgot that. And I knew that I wanted to to keep those and, and uh, experience those sometime in my life. And then, and then there were other things that uh, I think shaped my interest in that. Um, I, I interned with the Kentucky Reptile Zoo uh, with uh, Jim Harrison and Kristen mm-hmm. Wiley. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, my I, my friendship with uh, Taylor Tevis. He was working there at the time, and he and I became really really good friends. And we would talk snakes. Uh, he's cleaning cobra cages, and and uh, while you know, well, he's handling the cobras. I'm cleaning the cages, right? And and uh, and we're just talking snakes, right? Like that was our our job, and it it just <laughs> I, I kind of worked out to where it was like I. I knew I wanted to get these snakes and rhino rat snakes was the ones. And I still had memories of them being on pro exotics price list for $1,200. I remember that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I thought they were interesting and I had never seen one. I don't think I had ever seen one before I had one. I I received mine. Cool. Um, Not, not personally. No, I've never seen one. So, um, and they didn't disappoint like they're, (laughs) It was just, it was just awesome. I mean, they're snake, they're, they're snakes in 3d, you know, it's no yep. longer a singular plane activity. Yeah. It's, it's 3d. And, and I really, really, really enjoyed that. And I guess I just keep, um, keep gravitating towards that. And it's not all that. I mean, I, I, I got, you know, the, uh, this Tumatra and pythons too, that, that I, mm-hmm. I like too, but, uh, but for sure the arboreal stuff is, is very, very attracted to me. Definitely. No, very cool extremely cool yeah i I, i've dabbled with boiga um i've I've kept uh i can't say it sienia the the green Uh uh, guys i've I've bred them uh and dealt with the babies which was fun (laughs) uh and then you know obviously the baron tracers and and all that jazz so it sounds like Obviously, rhino rats were the beginning with the arboreal colubrids for you, and then you kind of moved on to the boiga. Uh, mm-hmm. where, where, at what point does um, do Baron's racers come into the equation? So that was John at, at Black Pearl and and um, Jeff Godbold's you know Corrales Radio. He was on uh, so so John was on Corrales Radio and he was talking about them. And I had always hated on Baron's racers because I felt like they were the inferior run around there. They were the inferior yes. horned snake. That's like know? a common bickering yes. point for those yeah. who keep either of those species. Yes. Yeah. If Justin Smith's <laughs> listening, Baron is uh-huh. better. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, like, what's the point? Like it, it just, the, 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 the nose doesn't compare, right? Rhinos yeah. win, right? Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's like Serastis, like, like Serasti's Gasparetti is the is the the better snake with the horns, you know, yeah, on, uh-huh. on its uh, on its head. Um, like you're not going to argue that. Like rhinos are just better. Well, anyway, <laughs> through through listening to uh, this interview, um, you know, John's talking about him. He's talking about here's this snake that it eats pinkies right off the bat. You know, <laughs> it's uh, uh, it comes in different colors and uh, and and they get fairly large, right? And I thought. All right. Well, I'll try them. Right. And really, I think it was um, it was as much curiosity as it was like a market decision. Like yeah. I saw I saw like, OK, I think I could I think I could sell these and um, I think they could be in demand. So mm-hmm. I had just inquired uh, of John if he had them. 
for next year. And he said, actually, I have three right now. And I was like, oh, uh, well, I mean, do I want them or do I not? You know, so I said, okay, yeah, I'll take them. And so he shipped me a trio. And as soon as I opened them up, it it was night and day. It was like, there's yes. n- there's nothing about these that resemble a rhino rat snake. Mm-hmm. Like they're mm-hmm. a completely different animal. They rhino rat snakes are definitely more rat snakes and Baron's racers are more racers. You know, they're about as equivalent as, you know, Kaluber constrictor to uh, black rat snakes. It's yep. just, right. they're just not the same. And, um, and, and I've really, really enjoyed them. They're, they're, uh, they're fun to watch. They're, uh, they're, they're pretty. They're a completely unnatural looking color, right? People are just really drawn to the blues. The blues are all that I have. And, um, so that's been really, really cool. And, and then they've just been a dream to raise, you know, I, I just had a, a clutch of, you know, 16, 15 out of 16, eight, uh, pinkies just drop fed, you know, frozen thawed pinkies drop fed overnight. And, uh, and, you know, so they've been really, really good in that, in that regard. But, um, so that's kind of what got me into the barons, you know, I said, it doesn't have to be either or, you know, you no. can, you can be, right. you know, you can look, you can like twilight and Harry Potter. It's okay. <laughs> okay. It doesn't have to be either or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I am actually getting, uh, I had rhinos. They didn't jive well with my room at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I gave my rhinos to Justin. So Justin's rhinos used to be my rhinos. Um, right. Or at least as a so result pair. He's got some of mine and he's got some yeah, of yours now. There you go. Yeah. And, but uh, but I'm actually, remember how I talked about the false water currency? Guess yeah. who's getting an adult <laughs> pair of rhinos next week? There All you right. go. No, that's right. wrong. Guess who's getting a pair of adult rhinos tomorrow? Because last that's that's where I am with Tinley time. So they're coming back in. <laughs> yeah. So no, you can keep yeah. them both. There's nothing wrong with keeping them both. Well, see, yeah. I'm sitting here thinking I need some barons. And I, I think you just said, what, 17, 18, Terry? Is that what you said you just had? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I had. Yeah. yeah. Noted. Yeah. Noted. Noted, yeah. Terry. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, I know you definitely have this experience with Boiga. So let's kind of head back. To there and there's a lot of listeners we've had several episodes dedicated or so not we, we've had several listeners ask for boiga uh mm-hmm. because they definitely have i've noticed that within herpetoculture if you keep boiga you're kind of you either dabble with a mangrove and you have like your obligate mangrove or you're like all in um mm-hmm. and so when it comes to boiga what is your general husbandry like so like what's the setup of the cage um, do you go big cage naturalistic? Do you go rack? Like what are they actually in? And, and if you could just kind of go over the cage, the furniture inside the cage, um, and then we'll get to temperatures and feeding and all that kind of jazz. So I prefer, I prefer larger cages with, um, with a lot of branches. I, I prefer that. Um, it's, that's how I have my, my Sinodon set up. And that's how I am going to have everything set up. My cyanea are also set up that way in, in large cages with arboreal hides and a lot of climbing opportunities. And they're, they use them, right? They, yeah. they definitely use them. Um, my melanata right now are in either four foot visions or in CB70 tubs. 
it's not uh, it's not going to be their end. That's not the end result. That's not where I want to keep them uh, because you can't you can't see them. And when you pair a snake that's uh, <laughs> cannibalistic, right? Uh, <laughs> you, you I really really want to see them. Okay. Yeah. And that's and fair. So yeah. As well as I mean, I can remember the very first time I ever saw a mangrove snake, right? Reptile Garden Snake Show. Like I just and I thought that's the most beautiful snake I've ever seen. Like they're super super mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I have a love hate relationship with them because <laughs> uh, they I I love them and they hate me, right? <laughs> it's kind of how that goes. And uh, but uh, but yeah, so that's how I keep them and. Um, so what I'm thinking of now, I'm exploring new caging options and stuff. So I had built, uh, just to take you back just shortly, 2021, I, I bought the house that I'm in now. Um, if you've ever bought a house with a snake collection, you know, my mm-hmm. realtor, you know, it's like my realtor is saying, what do you need? And it's like, well, okay, we need a fenced in yard. You know, I got two kids. I'd like a garage or a place for the snakes. I'm sorry, the what? Okay. We (laughs) have a collection, you know, and, and then it's like, this is what we need, you know? And, and so then they're just like, okay. And they're, you know, so now they send me houses and they're like, Hey, I think we could put the snakes over here. Do you think you could put the snakes over there? And I said, I think that'd be (laughs) a great question. And, uh, so, uh, so, so it became apparent that that was really, and in 2021 was not a very fun time to look for a house. I mean, it was, it was bonkers. And so it became apparent that, okay, maybe we just find a place that has a place for the snakes temporarily, like a garage, and then I'll build what I want and I can build, mm-hmm. I can build it how I want and all that stuff. So that's, that's essentially what we did. Um, you know, we bought the house in June and then in September I started building this, this, uh, this shed out. So it's 500 square feet, it's three different rooms. And, uh, and the, the shed was part of it. And then it's like, okay, that's step one. And then step two is going to be all the cages inside. So now I'm, this winter is kind of going to be the beginning of kind of how to, how to do all that. So, Oh, um, so you're building the actual enclosures that will be in the shed. Well, you know, you go back and forth between, you you know, you look at the caging Uh that's out there, you think of what you want and you just, you can never, you can never, you can never find what you want. Nothing's perfect. Yeah. Nothing's perfect. You like this. I like that, but none of it's got it all. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, look, I'm not, I'm not dripping with free time. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And so that lends to not build my own stuff. But at the same time, you don't, you don't want to spend the money for, you know, commercial caging and then say, yeah, but it's not really what I want. You know. Yep. Um, so I'm still I'm still working on that. I'm still working through that. I haven't decided on a design that I want, but I know um, for for my dog tooth cat snakes, uh, really those and the, the the mangrove snakes, uh, I'm thinking eight foot cages, like eight by three by three. Wow. Um, and uh, because my dog tooth cat snakes are ten feet long, right? Yeah. You you put you put I mean that's thirty and and I I breed them in trios, so that's 30 feet of snake, you know? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, so an eight foot cage gets, gets taken up pretty, pretty quickly. And just to see them, you know, stretched out and it's just, Oh man, it's a, it's a whole nother level. So yeah. Very cool. But, but crazy. ideally that's, that's how I would I'd do it. They, they are, they do have fast metabolisms. Um, I, I feed primarily a foul avian diet. Um, and so I think, um, that's another thing that I'm going to, experiment with is different substrates and active substrates and things like that. Once we get there. 
Uh, I just learned something. I didn't realize dog tooth snakes got that long. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they got that yeah. long. Wow. Yeah, cool. Long and skinny, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. remember seeing them. They they were showing up in shows like 2016, 17, 18 here in the Pittsburgh area on the importer tables. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, the thing that impressed me most is I distinctly remember was at the show, there was a, what appeared to be a big one in like a you know, your kind of classic black bottomed clear deli that you'd see on an importer table and somebody mm-hmm. asked to get it out <laughs> and that yeah it was one of those like kind of willy wonka moments of the snake keeps coming like you know and, yeah. and it's like an eight and a half foot beast that came out of this 10 inch diameter cut but it's just <laughs> Skinny, scrawny, on top of each other, kind of thing. It was, it, right? Yeah, they're they're impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I remember now that you mentioned the shed. I do remember watching you building that on social media. Just mm-hmm. real quick, because I know that there's people listening that are probably contemplating doing what you did. Was it the experience you thought it would be? Building a snake shed. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what I thought it would be. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what I thought it would be. My wife asked me, you know, uh, right before we got the, the the rafters up, she asked me. She said, "What would you charge somebody to build this for them?" And I said, oh, "You know, I don't know. I'd really have to think about that." And two weeks later, I said, "You couldn't pay me enough to build." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the thing with construction projects is every time I do one, I feel like I learn enough to what I know what I would do differently the next time. But I also learn enough that I know I never want to do it again. Yep. And so what I, I had done, yeah, what I had done is I had taken shed plans and expanded them. So my building is 14 by 36. There's a, there's an 18 foot main room and then a 10 foot cool room and then an eight foot uh, quarantine room. And um, and all of them have mini splits in them uh, completely on their own zones. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's an epoxy floor. Like you'd put like on mm-hmm. a, like a, like a garages, right. It's like that epoxy floor foam insulation. And, um, I think I went over budget by maybe 300%. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it just, you know, and, and, but part of that was I took shed plans and I expanded them. So like my soffit underneath my eaves is all tongue and groove pine, which mm. it didn't like. So I spent thousands of dollars on my soffit instead of spending. <laughs> I could have spent hundreds of dollars, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or tens of dollars on my soffit. But I didn't realize the scale of what I was doing until I was at the cadastral register, you know, and they're like, well, that'll be $1,200. And I was like, well, why? And they're like, cause you got 10 more. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and at the time I thought, okay, this is more than just a construction project. Like this is an art project and yeah. I want to do something that I'm proud of and, and it's on our property. And, um, so I am proud of it. Um, but I, there are some times that I, I wish I had, more money in my savings account <laughs> because of it. You know, you, you describing that, I'm, I'm like, I know I could never do that. What I've learned about myself, when it comes to any kind of construction type project, I can give it my all. I can be incredibly meticulous. I can give full attention and, you know, have no problem with it as long as it gets done that day. 
<laughs> when, when it takes longer than a day, mm-hmm. I start yeah. getting frustrated. I don't like walking away when something's not completed yet. Now, I know there's going to, like, if any of my employees hear that, they're going to think, you leave shit undone all the time, <laughs> you know, laying around this store. But that's that's the thing is when it comes to building something, man, if it's not done in a day, I'm irritable with it. Yeah, no, so no. so yeah. man, I salute you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I tell you, I mean, really, I mean, my dad was a was a journeyman carpenter. He taught me a lot. And like I said, in eighth grade, we, we built that shed together. Uh, but I was never the one coming up with an idea. I was never one saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. He'd say, this is what we're going to do. And then, okay, well, I'll screw this together and I'll cut where he right. tells me to cut. But mm-hmm. being, you know, the, the general manager of the whole project, so to speak, was, uh, it was, it was interesting, but it was also, it was, it was really encouraging, man, you can, you, you can learn just about anything you want on YouTube. Yep. And, uh, and, I, and I did, you know, there were a lot of times that, that that's what I did. So, uh, I highly recommend, I highly recommend, thinking about it for anybody that's thinking about that. I'll tell you this, it is a hundred percent better than my garage. Uh, it's a, it's a hundred percent better than any spare bedroom that I ever had. Um, you know, I have water in my room. I it's, it's all, you know, the temperatures that I want it and it's snake proof. Yeah. And, and, and that in and of itself is so great. Like yeah, stuff great. happens, stuff happens, right? Like <laughs> yeah. snakes, like a snake gets out. And now I don't, I don't think, Oh, am I going to find it? I just went, well, I know I'm going to find it. I just, it's in this room. Like I will find mm-hmm. it. It's in this room. And, uh, so yeah, so that's, uh, and, and I have my friends who are, are really gracious and they'll remind me sometimes of, Hey, you need to look at where you came from. Like, yeah. you know, like, like you, you do have, you did build something that you can be proud of. And, and that's, yeah, sure, that's man. I, I really appreciate that. No, I mean, as, yeah. as someone who's right-handed, but when he tries to build anything, he has two left hands. I have, <laughs> nothing but respect i i distinctly yeah. remember watching that the videos you'd put up and everything and think he's just better than me <laughs> there's no way i can ever do this <laughs> uh so anyway okay well back to the snakes uh yeah. so uh w- with the enclosures do you ever do the live plant thing or or is it just sticks and and and, and you know the cage furniture is more branches and things of that nature so for for what what i've used in in my sign-on enclosure specifically is i used um i didn't do live plants so i i did uh some fake plants that i tied to the the sticks right and i feel like when we think hey you know get a get a cage and put a stick in there right it's like a a pretty big diameter stick, right? Like an inch, yeah. you know, half an inch, two inches, you know, uh, maybe there'll be some forks in it, you know, but that's not what I have at all. Mine are, they're very thin branches, but, and, and it's kind of a, a cluster. So yep. there's several highways and stuff. And I find that snakes would rather have many points of contact on many different small, small branches than mm-hmm. to just hang out on one big branch, you know, bigger branches can support bigger animals and bigger animals eat snakes, right? So it just kind of makes sense that um, they oh, would use cool, that yeah. ability. Yeah, they would use that thought. ability to to spread out. And I I learned that from that that uh, scrub python I had. I I let it go in a tree in my in my yard, thinking, well, it'll come back down. I'll just spray it with a hose when I want it to come back down, and it'll come <laughs> back down. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't come back down, I can climb the tree. And so it climbs to the top, like the middle of the tree and then out to the, the 
furthest branches and then coils up and stays there. And then when I'm ready to get it down, I spray it and it just starts drinking. <laughs> it never came down. So when I had that scrub python, I got very good at climbing trees, but it taught me that it's not the larger diameter branches that it necessarily wants. So, uh, so I've used fake plants. I did that more for a visual barrier as I was, as I was, you know, first getting them in, uh, in the, you know, the, you know, Terry 2.0, uh, <laughs> I, I really want to explore live plants some more. Um, mm-hmm. I've raised, I've raised babies in, uh, enclosures with live plants and far and away it, their, their, their sheds, their activity, like everything is way better. Um, so I'm convinced, uh, I'm convinced that there's a benefit there and uh, I want to do more of that. So I'm, it's definitely something that I'm going to explore more in, in the next iteration of what I'm doing. Very, very cool. That's very Mm -hmm. interesting. I I, I mean, that, that is neat. So you say their shedding is better. What other, like just uh, overall pieces do you see that kind of, I'll say increase, with the babies whenever you have this uh, yeah so take so so take this so the first clutch of dog tooth cat snakes i had i separated up into tubs right so i had them mm-hmm. all separately in like v18 tubs um water bowl hide uh very very i don't even want to say humid but wet right I, I i assume it was humid but i know that it was wet but we know that the, the ventilation was terrible um mm-hmm. And they they had terrible sheds, um, routinely had terrible sheds. So another clutch I had, I put them all in a three by two by two with uh, pothos plants and a bunch of sticks and a bunch of cork tube hides. And uh, I would I would fog them about mm-hmm. every night, every other night. And never once had an issue with shedding. Um, they all started eating faster than the ones in tubs. Like it was just it was, I was just convinced like, this is the way to do it. Um, and, uh, and so the latest clutch that I just hatched, that's what they're, they're in exoterra terrarium with, I went and got a big pothos plant, stuck it in there and cork tubes. And so the entire clutch of, you know, 13 snakes is in there. And, uh, and as they're out, I just, you know, feed them as I see them. And, uh, and, and that's kind of how I do it. So as they get bigger, as they grow out, like if one is, uh, significantly bigger than another, then I'll, I'll pull that one out and put it into a different enclosure. But, uh, but that is what I has, have seen. And, and even with the rhino rat snakes, I did that one time where I put an entire clutch in one cage to see how they reacted. And it was, it's hard to keep track of them, right? It's hard to see which ones have eaten and which ones haven't, but, uh, but they certainly seem to do really well in that environment. That's really, really neat. And especially you said pothos and that's when it comes to like bioactives or, you know, if you're putting a plant in a cage with a reptile, that is like the plant yeah. to utilize. Um, they're, they're cheap. They grow like crazy. Um, they're very easy to take care of. And it does. It seems like anything that I've got that in here at the shop, it, it they're doing fine. It's doing fine. I mean, it just seems to be like the perfect, uh, perfect greenery to put in with anything. So, uh, just neat that you've seen that just better result all the way around, uh, with those species of snakes. So that, sorry, you caught my attention with that for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to dive into that a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's more that we can learn there. I don't know if it's, mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's probably something with transpiration. There's something with, 
a micro, you know, micro mm-hmm. habitat, right? They can mm-hmm. get in among the roots and the dirt and, you know, the dirt's going to be moist and, and all that. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely something there that, that with live plants is not present there with fake plants, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Very yeah. cool. Very neat. Very, very neat. No, I have here in my office at work, um, this wall is all snakes and I'm looking right now and, uh, there are six smaller vivs and five of them have a pothos plant in them. And mm-hmm. I put the pothos in, in May and some of them it's, you, you think I have a pothos plant in a box and you don't know there's a snake in there yeah. <laughs> yeah. completely uh-huh. taken yeah. over, but it's really cool. All my Kings will actually use the ground foliage of the pothos. And, and I see them, kind of basking in coils by the heating lamps and everything, the exact way that I'll see them when they're out in the field, which is really cool. That's cool. Uh, so it's always nice to, to, to have that effect. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, Roy Blodgett does the same thing with uh, Spilodes sulfurius when he's rearing them, uh, which is they have them all together. Yeah. He yeah. keeps them in 18 by 18 um, uh, exos with a pothos plant. In, in cork bark. So there's another yeah. guy doing pretty much same thing with big old, big arboreal colubrid. So that's, mm-hmm. maybe there's something to that. Maybe that's what I need to do with, with my bear and I babies, which we're going to say bear and I for one second. So lighting, <laughs> what, what do you do for lighting with these animals? Do you have any kind of in cage lighting specific to them or is it ambient lighting from the room or a basking spot or what do you do on that front? So I've given them uh I've given them belly heat before. So lighting, I, I've had a, you know, T5, uh, fluorescent lighting on them. Um, version 2.0, I think I really want to go deep into lighting. I really Mm want to do uh, UV on everything, uh, for my animals that have, uh, hot spots, you know, like the, especially the pythons and the boas, Mm -hmm. I want to do the deep heat and the, you know, all the, the different wavelengths that we're learning more and more about. Right. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really want to provide all that. I want to see, uh, I want to see what it does. And, uh, I, I think there's, I think that will be really, really interesting. Uh, up until now, the lighting is really just been for my benefit so that I yep. can see them. I think it, it looks cooler. Um, mm-hmm. so I've just used LEDs and T fives. Uh, of course, if you have plants in there, uh, my cages that have plants, I did jungle Dawn LEDs, um, and, uh, and have used those. But for right now, um, everything is pretty much just on ambulant light. So my room lights are on timers. They come on every day and then turn Mm -hmm. off every day. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So we, we talked a little bit about feeding, but just for people Mm -hmm. that want to get into the, the Boiga, can you talk a little bit, a a bit about like you have a neonate cynodon versus Sina. What are you going to be feeding Mm -hmm. that? And then as they mature all the way up through adulthood, and then do you prefer a fowl diet or a mouse diet or, or how, what is your your approach to feeding so Boiga specifically? So le- yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards fowl. Um, I, I think we all know that these tiny snakes are not going to encounter, uh, <laughs> you, you know, baby mice in the wild, right? And mm-hmm. if they did, they would also be encountering mama mouse, which would quickly make a meal out of mm-hmm. whatever snake's going to eat them, right? Uh, and this isn't an argument of, well, they're not going to get that in the wild, right? Because they're probably not going to get the chickens that we're offering in the wild either, but, <laughs> but we're just trying to get something closer, right? So, 
so I want to feed snakes what they want to eat. And mm-hmm. if, if you give, I've seen this across several different species. If you present a mouse, um, we'll start with a, a chick. Like if you present a chick, they will inspect it with curiosity or ambival- ambivalence, right? Yes. Like they just, you might as well show, like put a stick in its face. Right. <laughs> and then if you put a rodent in front of it, it will have a strong reaction either in aggression, defense or escape. Um, that's, that's kind of what I've seen. So there's, there's something there. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that, uh, birds would be, especially if you're thinking of like, uh, you know, songbirds or nesting birds, you know, birds that snakes would be, you know, nest raiding or something. Uh, I think those aren't, um, those are going to be, you know, seed eaters or insectivores, right? They're not going to be carnivores. They're not going to uh, attack a snake as, as prey. And so there's less of a chance of injury. Right. Um, so I'm leaning towards a more avian prey. So to answer your question, when I first, uh, got signed on, when I, the, my first babies I ever got from Jordan Russell, um, he's very gracious to me, but I killed him by, <laughs> uh, by feeding him rat tails and, uh, fuzzy mice. So mm-hmm. I was, I was force feeding him rat tails and fuzzy mice killed him. Um, I told him about him and he says, yeah, you, you know, you can't do that graciously. Uh, let me try again. And, um, I had uh, sparrow cages, I had bird cages in my backyard. I went out to get some feathers to scent, a, a, a mouse and there were eggs in the bird cage. So I was like, well, these are really tiny eggs. Like, let me just take one. So I took one, put it in a two, <laughs> two ounce cup. Right. And I put it in the cage and within five minutes, that snake went up to the egg, consumed it in front of me. I went back out, got the other four eggs out of the nest, <laughs> put them in the in the deli cup, and that snake ate all four eggs in front of me. Right, it had never eaten a, a meal on its own ever. Just gobbled uh-huh. up these four birds' eggs, and I thought, okay, there's that, there's something there. Uh-huh. So awesome. I started making bird cages. Yes. Oh. And so, uh, but unfortunately, you know, the birds, you know, winter came, the birds stopped laying eggs. Yeah. I went back to assist feeding slash force feeding and, and I ended up killing those snakes too. And I said, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't think I can do this. Um, then I got the, the adults that I have now, I had success breeding this. So when I had those babies, I'd found out, learned from a guy on Facebook, he used um, pieces of frog meat. So he'd get frog legs and he'd slice off slivers of this frog meat and he'd assist feed them that way. And, uh, and they, they would take it pretty, like they would take it. It'd be fine. It's still assist feeding, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not force feeding. I don't push anything past a, a, a dog tooth cat snake's jaws. I, I won't ever do it for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that they can handle it. But um, it, that, but that worked, and then I could start doing that, and then ch- chase it with a like a pinky mouse, right? The only problem with that is it's very, very time consuming. I'm sitting there holding yeah. a snake, I'm doing that, I'm waiting for it to eat, and then I'm you know doing all that, um, and then uh, it's not it's not very cheap, and it's it's just I don't know, it was hard to scale. So then in later clutches, I thought, okay, they like eggs, hognose snakes eat hard boiled eggs. Let me see if they'll eat a hard boiled egg. So I had hard boiled eggs and I'd cut those into pieces and I'd just put those in their mouth. They'll eat a hard boiled egg. <laughs> they, they won't eat it 
off a tray, right? So I've cut them up and just left them in the cage and they won't eat them that way. But if you put it in their mouth, they'll, they'll swallow it. And I was like, okay, well, that's pretty cheap, you know, food source. It's, I feel like it's protein, right? It's gotta be better than a, a, a pinky mouse, you know? And, uh, and it's, you can shape it however you want. So it's easy to swallow. So I spent a year doing that and I would feed them that until they got uh, big enough to take day old quail. And then I would feed them day old quail. Um, then, um, I've also started them. Then I, I had another clutch and I just started them off a of day old quail at the very beginning. And some of them took them and then some of them took them and also died. Right. Like it was just, <laughs> it was just too, too big of a, too big of a meal. Huh. So, um, enter Jason hood, uh, who's been raising uh-huh. button quail and mm-hmm. I've really wanted, I, I'd gotten button quail before. Um, and I'd gotten button quail eggs and hatched them and, uh, and use those for feeders with some stuff that I was using. Uh, and so I really wanted to try them. So I got some, uh, button quail chicks, which if anybody's listening, button quail and Katornix quail are different species altogether. I feel like some people think I, I mentioned button quail and they say, Oh yeah. Okay. I'll get those from this, you know, bulk rodent supplier or whatever. They've got quail. I'll get button quail from them. It's like, no, those are day old Katornix quail. It's a Japanese quail. It's the quail that's raised for meat. It's, it's about two thirds larger than a button quail. Button quail, nobody raises them for meat. They're very, they're, <laughs> you, you, waste, you, you waste your time. Um, cause they're, they're very, very small. Um, but they hatch out about the size of, let's say a fuzzy mouse. And, uh, so I got some of these frozen from Jason and the first thing I tried them on was my diamond pythons. And I, I fed, uh, how many, I fed 16 diamond pythons and 15, eight off of tongs. These, these button quail. Wow. The very first feedings, um, second feeding, same third feeding, same fourth feeding. I got them on mice. So, um, it was like, wow, okay. I want to try these with my Boiga too. So this latest clutch of, of, of Cynodon, the dog tooth cat snakes, um, I've got them in the terrarium, right? So I had some up and I, I tried to thawed some out, took them on tongs, put them in front of them and they ate them and they're the perfect size. Um, I'm not handling the snake. I'm not stressing it out. I'm not having to assist feed it. So I'm really, really leaning into that. I, I really, really enjoy that. So that's kind of my, uh, so this weekend, my kids and I, we went, to this farm and we bought button quail. So uh, <laughs> nice. we're, we're now raising button quail and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And, uh, S- Cyanea, I've never had baby Cyanea. Uh, I've gotten juveniles from, uh, from Justin that were already established on, on mice. And my understanding is that, and, and you can tell me your experience, Zach, but my understanding is that they, they start, Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't They're want horrible. your experience. To go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. I don't have and, nice uh, things to say. <laughs> all right. And yeah, no. uh, so, so we'll see. We'll see if if button quail are a good example there. The other thing that I want to do is start raising zebra finches. Yes. Uh, I want to start raising zebra finches for their eggs because the, every single egg that was of, of appropriate size, all the way up to the adults, they devour mm-hmm. eggs. Um, and, and I think, I think it makes, it makes sense. I mean, uh, an egg is, is the perfect food source, right? It's easy to swallow for the most part and it's not going to fight back. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and so, and usually 
it's, you know, buy one, get four free, you know? So mm -hmm. if you found one, you usually have a lot of them. So I want to start raising zebra finches as well as the button quail, really kind of expand that for, uh, for getting these started. But, um, but that's what I've been doing with the, the dog tooth cat snakes, feeding them, uh, until they can take, uh, day old, you know, Katarnix quail, feeding them quail until they can take chicks and then just feeding them chicks for the rest of their life. Um, my adults will take, uh, I get larger chickens for them and, and they can eat them fine. I'll, I'll put chicken eggs just that I get at the grocery store in the cage. They'll eat those, um, which is especially for like breeding season and stuff. It's really cool, especially when you're co-having snakes, right? You have multiple snakes in one enclosure to be able to have food in there at lib where they can eat as much as they want whenever yeah. they want. And there's no possible, there's no fear of, okay, well, what if they're both eating the same thing and they eat each other? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so so that's been really good. And, and, uh, they, they've really liked the, I have one female, I put in four eggs and she ate all four. And I was like, okay, great. She's full. I put in three more eggs and come back the next day. And she ate those three eggs too. So, oh my God, um, Gosh. she's, she's looking pretty, pretty full, but, uh, but yeah, but no, I, I, I love this. I think, mm -hmm. so I, I have, I have my grad student pay and we're doing, we're working with, uh, Orion center for indigo conservation at central Florida zoo and making a sausage diet for indigos that's more that has a nutritional profile of a snake but isn't a snake and it's not because we don't want to feed them snakes it's just completely unrealistic to have a colony of feeder corn snakes for mm -hmm. eight foot indigo snakes like that's insane mm -hmm. to think yeah. about but it is possible to do like a reptilinx thing and mm -hmm. make a sausage diet that that's equivalent to them and so that's kind of introduced me to the world of nutrition. And my background is ecology. Like, I am not a nutritionist at all. I'm not a physiologist at all. That's not where my background is. But I keep getting pulled there now with this herpetoculture stuff. And it's absolutely fast. Like, I didn't realize what I was missing. Uh, mm -hmm. But the nutritional mm -hmm. stuff, every time I, I, I talk with uh, the veterinarian that we're working with at the zoo, who's uh, – an amazing guy. We may get him on here one day, Dr. Bogan. And then we're working with another uh, biologist who, and, and veterinarian who's a nutritionist. But when they talk, it's one thing to talk about the difference between a mouse and a rat and a chick with people in the hobby side of herpetoculture. It's another to talk to people who like, this is their thing. Yeah. And if, yeah. And, and I, and, and they don't have a dog in the fight. They're just, yeah. it's just science. And yep. both Bogan and um, Dr. Elamfield is the other uh, individual. They both fly out said for snakes, bir birds are definitely the more complete diet. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing that I realized, so you know, here I'm hearing this, um, and we all know what happened with rodent prices over the past three years. Yes, Inflation yeah. hit the rats. Yes, we do. That's yeah. for damn sure. And, mm -hmm. and we found a chicken farm <laughs> in New York who will sell us day old chicks for 14 cents. Yeah. Like, yeah. and so, Hmm, a 90 cent adult, adult mouse or a yeah. day old chick, which I've had two veterinarians tell me is a better diet for 14 cents. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so today we got our order of 500 chicks in, uh, and it, it you know, that's 500 flipping chicks. Yeah. And I, I know it was somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 400 bucks. I mean, you know, you, you just, yeah. uh, no, sorry. I can't do math. It was more like two to $300. So anywho, 
but no, I, and I love the idea of the zebra finches. Um, when I was in high no college, I I had a corn snake that wouldn't eat, and I was talking to someone about this, and he said you got to feed it a bird, and I was like okay, and yeah, this was brutal. But I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go and buy a parakeet. So I went to the store <laughs> and I bought a budgie and um, I walked through the door with the bird and my mom had a rule like no birds. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to sneak in the house like I did a million times before with whatever other animal I was sneaking. And, and she caught me like red handed. And uh, she's like, you're getting into birds now. And I was like, hopefully this bird is here for the next 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and she knew yeah. what that meant. And nothing against parakeets, respect parakeets, but yeah. I will tell you something. That corn snake went on a like four month hunger strike, which was the weirdest <sighs> thing to see a corn snake do that. The second the budgie hit the cage, the hunger strike was done. Like that thing wow. came wow. rocketing out, yeah. constricted it immediately, and then it ate for the next eight years. I had it, mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't think we wow. use birds anywhere near enough in the diet of these yeah. animals. I 100 percent agree. You know, what I love about this is, you know, when we're talking about the nutritional value, Mm -hmm. it's for me what I think so neat is when we just, you know, like, like what he was saying is, it just makes sense Mm -hmm. on their behaviors. You know, out in the wild, would of course that would be a more common meal. You know, and and more especially for the small ones. You know, that's the thing that to me is is just so neat is when we just stop and think of, okay, why won't this snake eat? All right, in the wild, what would it be doing? What would it be encountering? What would you mm-hmm. know? And, and making that shift. So I think, I mean, you know, the the eggs, you know, plucked right out of the nest there, and I mean, hearing them gobble down, that's spot on. You know, and that's mm-hmm. really the direction that when we're working with whether it's something that is unique and uncommon or. A corn snake that's night eating for months. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. if we apply that same principle, what would they be doing in the wild? What would they be encountering? There we go. You know, and it's yeah. we, we solve problems. It's you know we talk a lot about if the snake won't eat, it doesn't make it. You know, and and there's there's truth to that in some lines, mm-hmm. but it's also I mean where we need to ask ourselves if we shouldn't have to force something down its throat. Have we tried yeah. what it wants? Have right. we tried what it would be eating in the wild? So, I mean, another yeah. great piece here, gentlemen. <clears throat> yeah. Even when I was keeping Burmese pythons, my my male at the time, uh, he went on a strike, and uh, and then I got some you know raw chicken breast at the store, and and I threw that in there, and he he ate it out of the air. I mean, he grabbed it before <laughs> it hit the ground, you know, and it's like. It's like, my goodness, I've wiggled so many rats and rabbits and hamsters and I mean, everything. And it didn't want anything. And then there's something about that, that avian prey that, boy, it, it can really, really, uh, you know, turn them on, you know. And uh, it, it, it really is rewarding when you yeah you give a snake what it wants. You right. Know? Like right. rhino rat snakes. I've, when I was first doing rhino rat snakes, man, I can't. It was just assumed, right? It's still somewhat assumed. It's It's getting less and less. But it was just assumed that you just, you assist feed rhino rat snakes, pinky heads, you know, maybe for the nine months, you know, I mean, you just six feed them until they'll take a regular pinky. And, um, and I had heard people using fish and I thought, well, man, fish will die in a water bowl so fast. I'll see if I can get some tadpoles. So I got some tadpoles and stuck them in the water bowl. And I saw this snake that would like, 
it's like this little shoestring that's not going to eat anything ever became an absolute monster predator against tadpoles, (laughs) you know, and, and it it just devoured them. It it was so cool to see that transition, see that click in them. So, um, also with, um, with my bear and I, I've, I've seen better success with, with, uh, avian prey. Uh, I, with my mangrove snakes, I feed them primarily rodents. I'm starting to switch that over, uh, as I talk to more and more breeders, uh, about switching. And so Ashley, actually, I was listening to, uh, something that she did recently. And, um, and I, I think I'll start, uh, switching them more over to, to bird prey as well. So, but yeah, I mean, even prices alone this, this summer, yeah. I got more quail, uh, because it was cheaper than rats of the similar weight, you know? Yeah. No, it, it just seems like a very natural progression. Uh, yeah. I, I, I loaded my freezers up with rodents about two months ago. And then mm-hmm. we found this chick dis- distributor mm-hmm. and I'm waiting for my guys to go down for br- brumation to get my personal cooler down. But I know that yeah. next spring, uh, when the the first kind of hit to the freezer to fill it back up again, it's going to be chicks uh, a, a lot. Yeah. And, and, and the way it works, which because I actually talked to the farmers and it makes sense, is that they need if, if you're working with an egg farm, they don't need males and they still need to hatch out lots mm-hmm. of chickens um, mm-hmm. because they, they can get eggs and chicken breast out of the same bird. So it's more economic for them. So the males really sucks to be a male chicken on the chicken farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically get sexed immediately and put in a bucket and then they, they're co 2 and flash frozen. And the thing that I found really interesting, at least with this chicken farm, they were in New York that I was working with is they were completely baffled that people wanted to buy these things. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. You, you haven't looked outside your, your, your like poultry farm for humans mm-hmm. much. Cause yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that'll eat a chick beyond a snake. Um, yeah. so they, they See, were just, that, that could have been a missed opportunity there. That could have uh-huh. been a missed opportunity. You could have said, Hey, look, yep. I'll take those off your hands. Yeah. yeah I'll take all of them. Yeah. See, that's the nerdy scientist in me. I don't do business at all. <laughs> so, anyway. Okay. Yeah. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to segue a little bit on to breeding. Um, mm-hmm. With this, you know, we've kind of made it uh, cyanodon specific tonight for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. What is the process in breeding them? Do you have to do any kind of cycling or is it a, you know, they're asynchronous breeders and you can pretty much get eggs any time of year or, or, or how do you go about that? I have found with the with the cynodon and the cyanea, so the green cat snakes and the dog tooth cat snakes, that if if they're fed enough, they'll go right. Mm-hmm. Just just feed them a lot, pair them, you're going to get eggs. Uh, and if you get eggs once, you're almost guaranteed to get eggs twice. Um, I've gotten I've gotten four clutches without pairing a, a male um, in a row, and I, I was trying to turn my female off, like I was just trying to. I was trying to turn her off. I wasn't feeding oh. her as much. The temperatures were a little bit lower and she'd lay another clutch and, um, they'd be infertile, you know, but she, she'd lay them. I'm like, well, my goodness, I guess if, I mean, if she's going to lay, I might as well, you know, feed her. So, um, now I try to, you know, feed them more and, uh, you can't, it's, you, I've never seen an overweight Boiga, right? <laughs> I, I've yeah. never seen a fat one. Um, you, I, I got some, I have a very, very large, uh, melanata, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say she's fat in any, 
and in no way is she fat and the uh the cyanea and the cyanodon same thing like you're never ever going to overfeed those uh and if you do i'd really really like to see it but um yeah they they <laughs> produce a they produce a lot they're very prolific um like i said i've had i've had four clutches of cyanodon eggs within 12 months and um oh without pairing the male so so with those two species in particular and so uh justin really talked me through the cyanea and you know just feeding them a lot of course you can you can palpate for follicles you know if i ever palpate and feel follicles i'll throw the male in there and uh but what i am still trying to figure out is the mangrove snakes i think the mangrove snakes i've talked to people and they've said um same thing food cycling food cycling them and um and then paring down during a like a storm event yep. you know like a drop in barometric pressure um i think it I think it makes sense to to do that. I've heard of people uh, cooling them down. I've I've read a lot of literature. There's a lot of PDFs you can get Google Scholar that, that's printed on um, Guangjinsis and um, and Dendrophila, so the mangrove snakes, um, and even the cyanea. Uh, and some of them reference a uh, a cool down event in in the winter. Um, I don't think that's necessary. I, I know that's not necessary for the, the green cat eye snakes or the dog tooth cat snakes. Like I said, I'm still trying to, um, to unlock my mangrove snakes, but, um, mine laid eggs in the middle of winter. So it wasn't, you know, they, it, it, it wasn't necessarily. And, and afterwards, so in the middle of winter and in summer, so they double clutched as well. So, uh, Interesting. I'm more, yeah, right. I'm more of the, I'm more of the thought that they can go any time of year. Um, but they do, they do seem to, to respond well to a food cycling event, feed them a whole, whole bunch, um, wait for it to rain and throw them in. Yep. That, that's basically what I did with my green cat eyed snakes. They, okay. I did, um, do a little bit of temperature cycling, but it wasn't like, it, it, I wouldn't call it a full blown brumation. All that I did, I had them set up in vivs in my office at home, which is mm-hmm. kind of the equivalent to my, if I had a warm room, uh, that would be it. The the snakes are also out in the garage. In the garage, I just let her rip. It gets it's perfect. It gets down into the mid fifties, um, low fifties for brumation purposes. But I just turned the lights off in them. But there were still plenty of lights in the in, in the room because of all the other enclosures. Mm-hmm. So there was some ambient light, and mm-hmm. we had a couple blizzards rolling through in late February, and uh, it was funny because I was breeding my pop wind carpets and my cat hide snakes, the exact like same weather front. And I thought, what the hell? And they both, as soon as I introduced the mail, there was no, like it was an immediate, all right, we're doing this kind of thing, which was cool. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, something slightly different, but, but with the babies, with the cat hide snakes, I don't know if Justin talked to you about this, but Justin, and I, I got a pair from Jordan Russell as well. Uh, but the kind of general consensus with them, and I, it may have changed since this was four or five years ago, no, three years ago, because this was 2020 when I bred them, um, mm-hmm. was that you basically do, you, you offer pinks, you offer frog scented pinks, you offer bird scented pinks, um, but they're so damn small when they come out that the only kind of prey item readily available is a tail. And so you just basically, mouse tail them um mm-hmm. until they get a little bit of size uh 
mm-hmm. it's almost like once they get the size to eat the pinky, they then eat the pinky. But I don't. Uh, when mine came out, I distinctly remember looking at them and being like, if you actually could swallow this pinky, I'm pretty sure your throat's going to explode because it was <laughs> yeah. so tiny. Uh, but yeah. I know better. I know that, you know, there's a lot of elastic tissue in there, and I'm certain that it, it probably could have. But um, we the, – the, I got a trio from Jordan Russell, and that trio was a pain. I think the shipping mm-hmm. process stressed them out a lot. Yeah. Uh, the the clutch that we raised here at the school, uh, we we they converted from the tails to the pinkies much faster. I definitely remember, mm-hmm. and I definitely attribute that to the fact that they just they never went through that crazy shipping process, which has to be about the closest thing to an alien abduction an animal can experience. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, but but no. Well, and you said you have cyana eggs in the incubator right now. I do, yeah. They're, yeah. I, I believe they're on about day ninety-five or so. So <laughs> maybe what in about. What do you incubate at? Room. Room. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and and I'm sorry for how you know ambivalent that is, but no. Um, so, but they are. They're they're on the mm-hmm. top. They're on top of the cages that I breed them in in my in my room or warm room. For the most part, that's about eighty-two degrees. I have, I have incubated them in a completely controlled setting. Um, Chris, uh, if you're if you're into Boiga, you know this Chris guy in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, he's absolutely phenomenal uh, keeper and breeder. I've I've tried to get him on a podcast, and uh, he uh, he's just he's not he doesn't show it online at all, but he's not confident in his English to do a, an interview. And, and I said, did you could, you can do it in Dutch, man. I'll, I'll find <laughs> some way to translate it. Like, people need to know, you know? And, uh, but, but he's such a great resource. And, um, uh, he said, I, I believe what he would do is, uh, 84, uh, in the daytime. And then he would provide a night drop to, mm-hmm. I believe about 78. And he, he would do that. So I've done that in an, an incubator in my house and, and had success. Um, one thing I will say with the incubation. So the first clutch of Dr. The cast things I had, uh, I set them up on like floating perlite, right? So egg crate mm-hmm. on top of perlite full of water. So basically the SIM method. Um, and I, they, they didn't hatch. And in fact, they got too dry and it just, <laughs> just, I, I, I was, I had just shocked that they did that. Um, and Whoa. by the time I realized they were so dry, I already had another clutch. And so I went back to that clutch and I covered them in damp sphagnum moss. And I said, if I said, if these eggs fail, they're going to fail because they got too wet. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I put more water than I ever would have recommended, uh, in these and, and sort of buried them in this damp sphagnum moss. And, uh, they hatched after 104 days. So now what I do for, for my Boiga is I'll mix up vermiculite and sphagnum moss, uh, in a, uh, a slightly more moist than normal consistency. Um, and then I'll, I'll bury the eggs in, in the moss. So I'll kind of make a nest, put the eggs in it and then put the moss over it. And then, um, you know, a nod to the ball Python breeders out there. I'll put that press and seal that glad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ziploc press and seal over the box. So it's completely sealed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, and I've had good success with that. So crazy. I've heard of, 
I've heard of some um, bursting, like mm-hmm. they they absorb too much water and they burst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't know why I don't have that that problem, ex- other than perhaps being in the in the the moss or they don't have direct contact with uh, enough moisture to get to that point to where they burst. But I've never had an egg burst. Um, and and the other thing is it's always shocking that they hatch on their own because these snakes are the <laughs> weakest snakes you've ever seen in your life. And these eggshells are the thickest eggshells you've ever seen in your life. And, and they, they hatch on their own. Yeah. So that was going to actually be one of my questions. Have you ever had any issues with like fully formed dead and egg babies? So my Melanata egg this year, um, I had, I had one fertile egg and uh, on day 125, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to cut this thing open. It had started leaking probably around somewhere in the, maybe in the day 80 or 90, it started leaking. Of course, that grew mold, which grew a larger yeah. growth. So it had this growth on the egg that was equal to the size of the egg, and, and but the egg looked fine. And so I thought, well, it'll be fine. On day 125, I was like, it's either dead in the egg or it was dead a long time ago, or I don't know, let's find out. So I cut the growth off. I cut the whole top of the egg off. All I can see is yolk. And I think, but I saw blood vessels, which was really confusing to me. So I was like, <laughs> you don't expect to see blood vessels on a, on a, on an infertile egg or on an egg that's dead. And, uh, but all I could see was yolk because there's no snake in there. And I thought, well, I, I, I don't know. And so I, I turned the egg over, I dumped it out and the, the snake was on the bottom. And I was mm. oh, freaked out, you know, so I scooped it back up, put it in, back in the egg <laughs> and, and I put it in, I put it in the, the nest box and I put the press and seal over. So, um, you know, no flies could get in there or anything. And, uh, and the next day it was on top of the oak and the next day it was out and, um, and wow. it was fine. Now, now, it, now that snake didn't survive. Um, uh, but, uh, but I, I was, I don't know. It was kind of, kind of fascinating. So, I have had, um, what the, the fact that you could cut it open and do all that and it, it lived. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it lived for, it lived for about a month. Um, it wow. was, it was, it was very, very small and, and its head seemed to me to be slightly deformed. Um, almost like it had like a cone cone head on it. So I, I think there was something, um, physiologically wrong with it, but, uh, but we'll see, I have more melanata eggs in the incubator right now. So, um, we'll see kind of how that goes. I have had some cynodon babies fully formed, uh, die, but they were on the bottom of the egg mass. And so I just attribute that to, they just weren't able to, they weren't able to hatch. And I think about that sometimes I think if they were going to pip and they didn't pip into open air, but pipped into another egg, that's twice the thickness that they would have to go uh-huh. through in order to hatch. Right. And then they'd have to go into an egg and then out, you know, find the hole or whatever. Um, and so it makes me wonder if maybe they just, you know, luck of the draw, they guess the wrong spot to pip and end up drowning or something. But I asked that because I, that's one of the kind of battles I've had with, uh, uh, Prasenum, um, mm. with Greenbush rats where I've had fully formed dead in egg, ba- dead in egg babies. And after cutting the eggs, um, I mean, they'll be on top, you know, they will be. And so I've, I keep wondering, okay, is there something where humidity is too, too low, too high, you know, causing thickness of the shell to uh, be a problem for them to get through it, you know, lowering temperatures did help. 
I started getting mm-hmm. higher uh, hatch rate, but just with everything you were saying you were doing with, uh, you know, from one extreme to the other with the humidity um, and the fact that you are incubating at room temp, which is exactly what I'm doing as well. But my, my temp is a little bit lower. I'd say closer to about the 76 mark. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to see if, you know, you were experiencing any of that at any point, because then I start wondering, is it an oxygen thing where, mm-hmm. you know, I'm holding humidity. Do I not have enough oxygen getting in towards the end Mm-hmm. You know, of the um, um, incubation period, whenever mm-hmm. that egg would be absorbing a little bit more oxygen. So, we're just curious on your thoughts there. Yeah. Um, are you feeding them rodents? Yes, primarily. Primarily. So, um, there there has been a thought in, in in some circles that a rodent diet is too high in calcium. And this is where the, your nutrition, I think will really, mm-hmm. really come into play here is are rodents really higher in calcium than avian prey. Like, um, but I have heard people say, Hey, we we fed a primarily rodent diet and this, the, the snakes weren't hatching. And this is popular in Bowiga. If you read the articles um, published online, and these are, these are very old, some of them from the seventies and eighties, um, they do talk about the thickness of the shell and they attributed it to hard water. They were, they thought, well, maybe you needed to use rainwater or distilled water or soft water. Um, but, but this is when they were, you know, they were incubating in sand in a Ziploc bag, you know, or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that's a thing as far as the oxygen exchange. I feel like that's less of an issue than we think it is. And I could be wrong, but the only reason I think that is ball python breeders use this press and seal right on their egg boxes and they don't open it at all until you know so for 55 days it's completely sealed and ball pythons will hatch just fine right um and and i've i've witnessed that and however it's interesting too that in that same example condensation will form on that press and seal and it'll drip on the eggs and so these eggs are wet and they still hatch. Now we all like you do that with a Bulma egg or a blackhead egg or a chondro egg. You, you can do yeah. that with a lot of other yeah. eggs. And I mean, you just, you, you know, you, you look at them wrong and it's going to be too much humidity <laughs> you know, and they're going <laughs> right, to go, they're right. gonna go wrong. So, so it, it's strange to me. I think egg, you know, I don't know, is that egg ecology or, or mm-hmm. the egg science there of why do, why are some eggs more susceptible to this and some are not? And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it makes sense to me. I understand why a Woma egg would be uh, more prone to adapt to a, a drier condition, right? And where a, say, a, 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 a ball python egg that's, uh, maybe it's pretty humid, I, I assume. Uh, my understanding is it's pretty humid in these rodent burrows or whatever that's living in that it's able to, to take that. Right. So, but I don't, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I try to mitigate that by about once a month early on, I'll open my tubs up and then as it gets closer to hatching, I'll open them up more frequently. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so maybe once a week and then, you know, but, um, but it seems like you're on the right track with lowering the temperature and all that. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. I haven't had any of this happen yet, so I'm just sitting back listening. <laughs> so when it does happen to me, I at least know what the hell may be going on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a punch. You know, whenever you're cutting open an egg yeah. that should have been gone and it's just 
turns out that it was just a dud to begin with. It just looked good, you know, for a while. Yeah. That's one thing. But man, when it was a fully formed baby, it's uh, just just digging in deeper, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's heartbreaking. I had a rough scale python clutch that it was there was like four or five fully formed dead in the egg, you know, and and it just makes you wonder, like, it's just like, why? Like, why? You know? So I don't know. Yep. I don't know. And then if you, if you look at maternal incubation, you think, Oh, okay, well, eggs are fragile, right? Like I must've done something or whatever. Have a Python maternally incubate an egg and then say eggs are fragile. Like (laughs) like, they look like garbage, right? Like things will leave them and come back and, uh, and, and they, they, you know, they, they hatch. So uh, it's, it's not a fragility issue. Uh, It's, it's something else and we're getting better at it, but there's still a lot to learn. Well, we're, we're, we're running down with time, and I don't want to okay. keep you too much later because it's kind of late for us on the Eastern time zone. But since we're talking about eggs, you did say that yeah. you've hatched Bear and I. Is, is that yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Have, have you done like a single clutch or multiple clutches, or, or where are you on that? Front? I had, I had, I had, let's see, what year is it? It's 23, 22, 21. I had three clutches in 2021, uh, only one fertile egg last year. <laughs> this year, um, I had, uh, three, uh, three clutches. Um, I had, so three good clutches and two or three, uh, clutches that slugged out. Gotcha. So, yeah. so do you, do you incubate them the same way as you do the Boiga or are they a different can work? Yeah. Same. Okay. The egg box are right next to each other, right on top of the yeah. cages. Yep. Do they, at that temperature, do they last as long before hatching as Boiga or the Boiga? Because no, we did, they're, they're a lot faster. Okay, they're in like the 80, 70 yeah. to eighty day range at those lower yep. temperatures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, you know, now I've literally written the book on yeah. Philodryas, right? And yeah. I, I, I was at Tinley, and two things happened at Tinley with Philodryas, which I found rather interesting. First, when you write a book that has a Baronine chapter in it, everybody that's gotten bitten by a Baronine had their hand blow up shows you pictures of their hands, yeah. which <laughs> I saw yeah. so many inflated hand pics on Saturday from people being bit by Baronine. Uh, so I'm going to say this now, and we'll have more Baronine episodes, but every time we have a Baronine episode, be careful with them. That you know, you got to work to get bitten but if you've got quail scent or mouse scent on your hands and if you've worked with these snakes you know they got a strong feeding response yeah. uh everybody that had been bitten had been bitten because of a feeding issue the snake went over the tongs bit them on the hand or um one guy was feeding them with his hand which was really hard for yeah. me not to tell my feelings about that and, and yeah. i'm sure like you said i look like the gorilla in the zoo pretty sure that <laughs> i had that expression on my face when he was yeah. Showing me the, yeah. the picture of his hand. But um, when I had, you know, I, we have one female here at the university that produces uh, another female here at the school who's she's a beautiful animal. She's a giant. She's the biggest baron I have ever seen. She's seven and a half feet of pure mm. baron. I wow. can't get a clutch out of her to save our lives. Uh, mm. But um, we I, I don't know if it's the pairing. I don't know if it's my female. I don't know if it's us. But we have had a hell of a time getting the baby bear and I to eat right off the mm. bat. But it seems like bear and I keepers, it's the same thing as tricolor hognose snake keepers. You either get 
babies that just eat or you get babies that you got to do a lot of tricks. And I had to do a lot of tricks. So when you said early on that you just drop fed them and they went, I would like to, and I know it may be that simple. I would like yeah. to explore that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe He's like not calling you a liar. Oh, like, no, no. I don't want you to prove this. You know? <laughs> I just want to know what you're doing that I'm not doing because yeah. holy shit. So, uh, yeah. so is it just literally, are they kept singly? Or are they kept together? Are you doing I that? No yeah. thing that we about? like well, what's your no, strategy so, there? So I keep them singly. So I, I keep them all together until they shed. Once they mm-hmm. shed, I, I put them in, uh, these, the very small, uh, tubs. They're the reptile basics hatchling racks. Uh-huh. And um, I know exactly what you're talking about. We have those yeah. actually. So I, you know, the really small ones that are yes. probably like an inch and a half wide. I don't mm-hmm. use those. I use the double of that. So yep. with that rack, you know, you put two of them in, but it's only, what is it? An, like an inch tall. Yeah. It's very, um, very, 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 sh- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very short. So they go in that with a paper towel, two, uh, two ounce water dish, uh, toilet paper or, um, you know, paper towel roll for a hide, mm-hmm. I leave them in there for, for a couple days. I'm not real big on, okay, if they shed yesterday, let's feed them, you know, today. And, uh, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of time, but then, yeah, I just, I just thaw out day old pinkies and put them in there on the paper towel and <sighs> close the, close the tub and come back the next day. <laughs> Damn. So, we, yeah, I'm, I'm like shaving chicks and putting down on <laughs> pinkies and uh-huh. brown bagging the, 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 doing yeah. the old school brown bag trip. What we ended yeah. up figuring out is that I don't think that they were warm enough. Uh, okay. but I, I mean, I felt bad because I was like, I'm cooking these things. Mm-hmm. I got a, a tub from Walmart that had a locking lid, burned some air holes in it. Um, mm-hmm. when, and when I say locking, I don't mean like a, a normal tub. Those gasketed lids where you get a yes, really solid yeah. seal. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I got a, a herp stat that we had, and I dropped the probe down in there, and I pumped them up to about 88 degrees. And yeah. I, I, you know, I I basically was like, I'm going to science the crap out of this thing. I'm going to make them eat because I'm going to make their metabolism so freaking <laughs> like booming that it's going to kick in the appetite and it did work. And I put all my little bear and I in the brown bag with a live pink in this tub. And I didn't open it for 48 hours. I felt horrible for the pinkies that weren't eaten. Uh, mm-hmm. But after doing that, everybody ate. And the thing about bear and I is that once they eat, boom, you know, yep. they're off and, and they're off. Yep. They're like the false water cobras with their feeding response. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. like, you yeah. know, they're wonderful. Yeah. Uh, snakes with that, but it's just that getting them to go. Uh, mm-hmm. But we we've done two or three clutches here, and we lost a couple because he just starved to death, like they just wouldn't eat. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah, I think did that any there's of your some... females. Did any oh, of your ahead. females double clutch? Um, one of them did. Uh, well, we only have the one female. She double clutched one year. Uh, mm-hmm. Our male that is our breeder. I'm actually retiring him this year. He's kind of old. Uh, mm-hmm. He's also blind, which is really interesting. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a, I have a grow out male that is going to be taking his place. And it was funny. I probably could have used him. They're all together in a great big, um, animal plastic stack. We keep them in, uh, the animal plastics T25s, which are six feet long, uh, 18 inches tall and about two and a half feet deep. They're real deep. And yeah. the females have 
you know, a whole run to themselves. And then the boys each have basically half of that. And the one yeah. male during the breeding season, because I do do a week brumation with them, he he refused food and was zooming. And I know that that was because he, he could sense the females were there. Uh, so I'm, I'm, mm. I'm wondering if he can get it done with the large female we have. Uh, but yeah. but next year, Bear and I is kind of high on my list to, to try to get some more um, animals just for the school. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Did you say yeah. you do a week a week brumation, like a light brumation, yeah. or a mm-hmm. one week long brumation? Oh no, no, no. When I say week, I mean around Thanksgiving time. I mm-hmm. draw. I turn off all the herb stats, mm-hmm. uh, and I basically for, at nighttime. So it's more of a. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you do with carpet python. Like so, pythons, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, night I, the nighttime lows are super important to dipsatid snakes. I found when mm-hmm. I did all the research for the book. If you actually look at the thermal profiles for the month, uh, daytime, you know, the day it's getting up into the seventies, uh, but at nighttime it can be dropping all the way down to the forties. So yeah, I started doing yeah. that with all of ours here at the school. And when I did that with the false water cobras, my production of false water cobras reached astronomical levels, <laughs> which is why I've produced over 150 yeah. of them this year with three yeah. females. Like that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, is, wow. Um, yeah. So and and that's not like that's not burning them out like they're uh-huh. they're good to go. Um, they're uh, so w- I want to do that with the bear and I. It's just I think I'm having fertility issues with that male. So I'm, I'm curious to see if that goes down. When, when you bred your blues, you did blue to blue pairings. Did you only get blues, or did you get blues and greens and everything under the sun, or or, or what came out the other end? So they 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 hatch green. Yeah, they all turn. They all turn blue. Yeah, I didn't get yeah. any greens. In there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, on yours, on your enclosures, how do you feel about that eighteen inch height? Do you do you like that, or do you wish? Uh, do I you wish it was higher. higher. Okay. Um, we we have some enclosures here that mm-hmm. are they're liter- they're they're literally zoo enclo- Like we have a big lab mm-hmm. uh, that we built built ins like you would see if you were in the reptile house at the zoo. Cool. Uh, and yeah. I, one of my secret imperatives is a cohabbed false water cobra bear and I enclosure because we had a sloth. I kicked the sloth out, gave it back to the zoo, and then threw the false water cobras in that enclosure. Uh, and it's it's eight feet tall. It's about yeah. nine feet deep, and it's four feet wide. Yeah. And um, the false water cobras, for the record, they go up like those giant uh-huh. beasts which are basically the same dimensions as a black-headed python. Uh, yeah. They climb. They, they suck at it. They get up there, and you'll hear a thunk yeah. as they fall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, I really want to put the bear and I in there because I am certain that they will be zooming oh, yeah. all that would through be those really branches cool. all the time. Mm-hmm. That would be really cool, yeah. Yeah, to go to your point yeah. on the venom, you know, when I, ship, when I ship mine out, when you open up the package, there's a disclaimer, right? Yeah. On the, like, as soon as you open it, it says – this is a rear fang snake, and yes. and I cite, um, you know that that paper. I know the a, paper. You know the paper. I cite the that paper in my disclaimer, <laughs> and, and I say, you know, this is this is the human reactions of of venom of this snake on humans, and that uh, you know, uh, a full a full is responsible for human fatality. So, I don't. My fear is that somebody that's once a pretty blue snake, you know, 
buys my pretty blue snake and doesn't know the ecology of the snake and doesn't know that. And then, you know, is, Oh, it's cute. It's biting me. And then, you know, something, you know, catastrophic happens like that's, yeah. that's my, that's my fear, you know, and we're, we're so lucky that they don't, they are not prone to bite. Yes. Because if they were, <laughs> they would be impossible to handle. Absolutely impossible yes, to would. handle. You know? Yeah, so. yeah, they whip around quite a bit. Um, yeah. Here here at the school, uh, we have beginner, moderate, advanced, and mm-hmm. they are absolutely advanced. And it's really mm-hmm. just me and the other professor that are allowed to to manage them. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, with, when they come out after a prey item – if you're not using like there's there's tongs and I actually they never leave my desk like these are too small for Bear and I we uh-huh. if you can't see them I think that these are our 15 inch tongs I we don't feed them unless we have the two foot tongs just simply because they lose their minds in the presence of they food do, yeah. and they do that thing that a king snake will do where they kind of open their mouth and they just ours do at least here and they just flail in every direction yeah. everything they come in contact with yeah. they do a little quick like pop um yep. and if they if it's your if it's your forearm or your finger that's tissue and they pop it and i, I don't think like it's not malicious they just are in food mode and they just don't care they're gonna you know grab it uh so yeah it's definitely worth yeah. discussing that whenever we talk about bear and i ours our female is really unique um she's actually in the book uh, she came out when I purchased her. She was green. And then she started to get this kind of ugly brown color along the dorsum of her back. And there are brown bear and I, but this was like brown and green. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, you look like vomit. Like, it literally looked like vomit. <laughs> it's like, this is the ugliest bear and I on earth. But she went through an ugly duckling phase. And then uh-huh. she came out of that, and when she reached adulthood, she became jet black on top. And then she's this really cool um, – it's not blue. It's not green. It's kind of the yeah. perfect intermediate between the two. But what's been really interesting with her babies is that she produces uh, – if she produces 10 offspring, nine of them will be green. And they haven't grown up yet, and they're they're across the, the country right now. So I'm mm-hmm. curious to see what they ultimately look like. But she has produced blues. So there's blues okay. in there. And I have one of the blues. that I, I That's one of the few snakes that I took from here home um, to raise out. And that is actually uh, – not. I don't mean to swear, but it's the only appropriate term. She's batshit. Like she, oh, yeah. <laughs> she does – she's the only Baron's Razor I've seen that is extremely defensive – and oh, like yeah. defensively bites. And mm-hmm. that is a scary thing to witness. Yeah. That is why she's at my house. Like I wanted uh-huh. to keep her cause she was blue, but I thought blue bear and I with 19 year olds that don't know what the hell they're doing. is not a good mix. So yeah, she will forever be yeah. at my, my home. So, so real yeah. quick guys, I, I, yeah. for my ignorance here, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the blue. So we talk, you know, greens and you said that even some Browns here. So are these, these colors are these more or less like kind of like chondros where, you know, when you're breeding for a certain look, it's you're more likely to get it with this pair, but you really don't know how that baby's going to turn out. Uh, I mean, or what's the kind of these color phases? Can you talk about those at all as far as where they come from, how they, yeah. you know, how what, you're going to produce them? What's the what likelihood? What appears to happen mm-hmm. is. Blue times blue usually makes blue and brown times brown usually makes brown. And you can have greens literally make anything. 
Uh, but most of the time, green times green equals green. But there are people that have blues that will produce greens and blues. And there are people that have greens that will produce greens and browns. Or they have greens that will produce greens and blues. And then you've got these black animals, which is kind of like, what the hell is going on with yeah. that? So yeah. one of the cool things about Barron's Racers, in my opinion, is they just kind of have – they're starting to pick up steam, like have a, a real diverse dedicated following, I think is the best way to put that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the line breeding starting to happen, and, and um, I'm pretty sure their genetics – I don't think it's as – I don't think it's just recessive and rec- – like I, I think there's some polygenics going on there or, some co-dominance or, or there's there's definitely weird stuff but at the same time if you've got the right two animals like what terry has they're just going to produce blues the whole time gotcha it's and i guess done. that was kind of my question is you know yeah. was it a locality thing was it you know where where these popped up but it sounds yeah, like there's, there's still a little bit more to yeah to and then there's the stripe too so uh-huh. some of them will have a really well-defined stripe and some of them will have a a weak stripe and some of it will be striped halfway down the body and some of them won't have any stripe at all, you know? Yeah. And all in the same clutch, you know? Yeah. They're just so, yeah. fantastic. It, it, yeah. 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 They are really, really cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've, we've kept you here a long time, Terry. So oh, man. <laughs> thank you for uh, yeah. being with us as long as, you, as you've been. We just kind of touched on Bear and I, you know, mm-hmm. love to have you back to talk about Bear and I. We'd love to have you back to talk about Rhino Rats. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've talked about Rhino Rats in the past, but everybody that is a Rhino Rat connoisseur, in my, I, I've realized everybody does something a little bit different than everybody else. And, you know, just kind of getting all of that documented in the podcast is just the whole reason why the podcast exists. So if you're willing to come yeah. back, we would love to have you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I wonder, uh, a rhino rat snake round table has never been done, you know, uh, you know, Rob stone and, uh, you know, I could think of buddy Buscemi and Mike Curtin, um, Matt, Justin, you know, Matt minute. Yes, absolutely. Matt. Um, if yeah, we can get a corner, cool. uh, uh, if we're, if we're uh, going to do this, if we're going to have a round table. It's going to be a handful of Barron's guys, a handful of rhino uh, guys. That'll be the, the, title, yeah, the title of that episode is going to be yeah. tonight. We settle this. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. So look, I don't have a dog in the fight, but I will say, uh, a, a Facebook friend of mine mentioned, Hey, can you, Cohab, a Baron's racer and a rhino rat snake. I know and I said, <sighs> absolutely not. Yes. And they said, why? And I said, well, first of all, it's just, it's just not, it's just not smart. Right. I said, I said, this is what this, you can do whatever you want, but two snakes kept in two separate enclosures will never eat one another. I said, exactly. there will never be a problem. But I said, if you put those in there, I said, the possibility is there. And I said, I can almost guarantee that that Baron's racer is going to eat that, that rhino rat snake. Right. And he goes, all right. It was, I told my friend, but we'll see what he does. It was like a week or two later, he sends me pictures and he says, you'll never believe it. The rhino rat snake ate the Baron's racer. Yeah. And these were, these were juveniles. These weren't adults. These were juveniles. And, uh, and I just, I said, said, if, if I hadn't seen a picture of it, I never would have believed it. Yeah. I I cannot remember for the life of me because it's 1030 at night. We had yeah. a guest on that brought that up. That 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 yeah. that was the result that the rhino rat ate the baron eye. And ever since then, it, it I've, I've been knocked down a peg. 
because I was convinced yeah. Bear and I <laughs> would eat the rhino rat. I was at, and yeah. I don't, and, and they're too damn expensive to do round two. Not that we would right, want to yeah. do that, but you know. <laughs> so, and, wow. and you know, when I when I heard that, uh, when I, when my my room was in uh, a guest bedroom, not a guest, but I mean it was just a different bedroom, right? So when I was in my house, I had like my rhino rat cages, like kind of a wall of rhino rat cages. And I had this reticulated Python that I would let kind of free roam the, the room while I was out. Um, same with that tiger rat snake. I do the same thing. And when I had these snakes out, it was the weirdest thing that all the rhino rat snakes would be very interested <laughs> in watching that snake. They would be watching the, the snakes, you know, and almost like, I don't know, like more than curiosity, you know, almost like a feeding response. And it just seems so strange to me. I was like, why is, why, why are they doing that? You know, why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's, there's something to that. And, um, maybe they're, they're ophiophagus to other snakes, just not their own. And we just haven't figured it out yet. Um, because we're not, you know, we're not keeping them with corn snakes or, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but I don't know. Yeah. The, the things you learn, you know, the things you learn, man. Yeah. So if, if, well, I stated, thanks for coming on. Fantastic episode as, as usual for us, but this one was really good because really interesting stuff, Uh, especially talking about, you know, the Cynodon, which don't get that much love. So that's pretty fantastic. But if people want to see your snakes or reach out to you or you have offspring and they might, they heard about them on this episode and they might be interested, how do people reach out to you and find you? Uh, or do you want people to find you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it'd be fantastic. I would love to be sold out of snakes uh, by Thanksgiving. So that, that would be absolutely wonderful. You can. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Terry Burwell. Uh, I'm not super active, but uh, I am on there. Uh, I'm a mortgage loan officer. Like loan officers are like real estate agents. We're really easy to to get a hold of. My phone number is all over the internet. If you want to call me, eight six four. 887-3870. Shoot me a text. Call me. Uh, be happy to talk snakes. Um, alternatively, my email address is burwell.terry at gmail.com. So Perfect. Uh, hit me up. I got, you know, I got diamond pythons, Sumatran short tails, Boiga cynodon, Angolan pythons, ball pythons, and I should have some cyanea and maybe some adult male rhino rat snakes if uh, you're listeners of this podcast. So hit oh, me up. Perfect. Love it. All right. And if you want to get a hold of us, as usual, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Loafman on Facebook. Um, I'm just going to keep saying it probably until next July because that's how long it's going to take me to get rid of them. But um, False Water Cobras, there's a special for listeners, and a lot of you have taken me up on that. So uh, it's been it, – in fact, I don't think I've sold a False Water Cobra to anybody this year that wasn't a listener to the podcast, which I really like because uh, – I can get a hold of you because I love to see what the snakes are doing and all that jazz. Um, so uh, please hit me up on that. Uh, grad students, potential grad students, reach out to me. Talk to two at Tinley. I didn't think Tinley could be a recruiting event, but it was. And that made my bosses at the university happy. So there's that. Um, but please reach out. We're doing lots of things. Got a relationship brewing with the St. Augustine Crocodile Farm right now. And the projects we'll be doing there uh, I talk about 10 year old Zach all the time. He's going to stroke out and die if we get to do that stuff. Um, and I need grad students for that. So there's that Clint, if people need to get a hold of you, where do they go? 
Uh, you can find me personally at Clint Bartley on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us at Metazotics on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, it's Metazotics LLC. And obviously check us out online, Metazotics.com. And as always, uh, we have a coupon code for CC Radio listeners, and it is CC Radio. And currently it is 15% off of anything on the website. Even if it's on sale, you can still use the coupon on top of it. So use it. (laughs) All righty. So with that being said, thank you all. It's been a fantastic episode. No matter what time of day it is, I hope you're having a good one. And later. Later.